Hello, you lovely lot. I wanted to take a moment to share an exciting announcement with you all. I will be doing a live show for Happy Mum, Happy Baby at the podcast show in London on the 22nd of May. This will be a live episode of this very podcast featuring me and a very special soon-to-be-announced guest. Get ready for a candid conversation, unfiltered truths, laughs, invaluable non-judgmental advice and lived experiences. Dive into the complexities of parenting while juggling work, relationships and personal growth and we'll be talking beyond the baby years. As well as the live episode, the show will also include a Q&A with both me and my guest. Tickets go on sale this Friday the 26th of April at 10am, but anyone who is part of the Happy Mum, Happy Baby newsletter will be getting early access to tickets on Wednesday the 24th of April at 10am. To sign up to the newsletter and for more information about the event, please head to happymumhappybaby.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome to a brand new episode of Happy Mum, Happy Baby, the podcast. Today's guest is a journalist, writer, trans man who carried and birthed his two children. It's Freddie McConnell. Hello. Hello. Thank How you for are having you? me. Today's a very big day and I'm <laughs> yeah. honoured that you're here in the studio with me because your eldest has started school. Yeah, the day was the first morning. Uh, it's just a morning and then we've got a kind of settling in week. Yeah. But yeah, it's quite, it's a huge day. It's, um, luckily he totally took it in his stride. I wasn't sure when we woke up this morning. He's quite inscrutable sometimes. Uh, I wasn't sure how it would go. When we woke up, he said, I want to stay with you, which was definitely just his way of yeah. saying I don't want to go to school. But yeah, we just kind of got ready, kept moving in a forward momentum, <laughs> you know, validating what he's saying. But, you know, it's going to be fine. And yeah. luckily he's going to school with a few of his mates. So that's definitely helpful. And how did you feel when, <laughs> when he walked through the door? I think I was in the moment just very relieved that it yeah. had gone so well and a bit like, oh, wow, I'm just going to, yeah, I'll just creep away. And then we went for coffee, me and some friends uh, afterwards to sort of uh, debrief. Um, yeah, but in general, I'm not great at um, sort of processing things as they're happening in the moment. So I knew in the lead up to SJ going to school, that I probably wasn't going to really feel it. Mm. Whereas all my friends seemed to have been talking about it a lot and you know sort of when they finish nursery or these big milestones throughout the year kind of like oh god it's so hard and all like when the, no- the uniform arrives it's very emotional yeah. and I just didn't really feel any of that and actually it was last night when the idea that oh this is really happening and it's the end of his infancy it's the end mm. of yeah it's, that, that's what got me was the idea that it was the end of his at total freedom yeah. for us to for him to do what he's always done his whole life and for us to hang out yeah yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, still, I'm not the best at processing my own but feelings and emotions. But do you so, think yeah. part of that is because you write? Mm. So maybe when you sit down, that's when you kind of digest a little bit more. Yeah. Maybe? Yeah, I maybe. I mean, it, I do struggle with the writing side of it as well. I mean, if anyone, um, 
you know, I've made this documentary about being pregnant with SJ and yeah. giving birth. And the thing I found hardest about that was Jeannie, the filmmaker, would interview me a lot. We spent a lot of time together, obviously. Uh, and it was often just the two of us, um, Jeannie behind the camera and also sort of talking to me. And I just began to dread her asking, how, how are you feeling? Right. <laughs> I was just like... I don't know, I can't explain, stop asking me, please. And and then, like, writing about it, I actually kind of find equally hard. To be honest. Yeah. I've watched Seahorse, your documentary, and I absolutely loved it. I always find with things like that, what's fascinating to me is the catalyst, like, what made you start filming it to start with? Is it your journalistic side that, mm. that led you there? Yeah, definitely. I am, uh, <laughs> surprisingly, I am... A very private person, and I'm I'm also very introverted and and socially. She's fascinating yeah. because it's like <laughs> literally you're captured at your most vulnerable, yeah. and it's it's compelling to watch. I mean, I think that's probably why I knew I needed to get someone else to actually yeah. make it. So like Jeannie Finley, you know, I was lucky in that I was in a privileged position as a journalist at the time working at the Guardian, where I could go to our head of documentaries, Charlie Phillips, who's a good friend of mine to this day, and say to him, "Who do you know?" Because mm. he used to run Sheffield Docfest. So I did feel like I'm in a position where I could make this happen, and and it could be quite a big thing, and it could be beautiful and seen by lots of people. So if I feel able to do that, I, I should. But yeah, so Jeannie, I sort of put a lot of power in her hands. I trusted her a lot. And absolutely, it, you know, obviously it played off. I love the film. I'm very proud of, of what we did together. But yeah, I mean, I was quite lonely during that first pregnancy. There was nothing like the community online that there is now. Yeah. And this was just like five years ago so that's kind of wild to think about as well how much things have changed in such a short period of yeah. time but I wasn't publicly on Instagram only a few people in my life knew what was happening so yeah it, it got harder and stuff but you know and at the same time because Jeannie and I had this close relationship I was really worried about the birth scene like that's at the end of the film which I think actually is the most incredible thing in the film yeah. and I'm so glad I didn't pull out of that but mm -hmm. I wanted to a part of me wanted to so I set these really strict ground rules for how it was to be filmed and at the time, and I remember I took my glasses off when I was in the um, midwifery-led unit in the pool. So the only person from the filmmaking crew that was in the room was Jeannie, and she was far enough away. I said, you have to stay at least six feet away from me at all times, <laughs> which sounds like I must have been such a diva. But, you know, I just knew what my limit was. And I, so I couldn't actually see her. It was so right. dark in that room. I didn't have my glasses on, so it was all just blurry. So she might as well not have been there, which was absolutely perfect. And she yeah. respected my ground rules 100% without question. So, like, that made all the difference like you say it's a really powerful mm. moment within the film because also with, within the you know the contractions and everything mm. it's the peace mm. and the stillness that comes between them that you just forget about no one talks about those yeah. moments that come between oh man i was so lucky sj's birth was just exactly what i wanted and this is going to sound like a humble brag, which I suppose it is in a way, but, you know, to the point where I was so in the zone, not to say I wasn't in pain and uncomfortable, but I was in the zone, I suppose, in another place mentally that I, I forgot that, like, pain relief existed. Mm. I didn't I didn't go into it thinking I don't want any pain relief. I just, I just literally forgot <laughs> about it. And so I got to the end and was like... Oh yeah, I didn't even try Gasnair, and I was a bit disappointed that I hadn't tried Gasnair. Like, oh god, that would have that would have probably been quite nice. But yeah, it was just oh, I was so lucky. You know, it was pre-COVID, so yeah. MLU was open, everything was there that I needed. Yeah. Um, let's go right back mm. to your childhood. Where did you grow up, mm -hmm. and what was childhood like? Did you have siblings? Yeah, I've got a younger sister who's two years younger than me, and then a younger brother came along when I was eleven. Right. Yeah. It's a half gap. brother. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in, well, I was born in London and then we moved back down to where my dad's family is from in, in South East Kent. And I, I sort of grew up in Deal a little bit, but mostly Sandwich, which is the next town up the coast. Yeah, and it's funny because Deal, where we live now, which is about three miles away, is a very uniquely sort of diverse town in terms of um, LGBTQ people. It's always got it's quite a queer history. It was a right. smuggling town, lots of sex workers, lots of yeah queer people, lots of transient populations. So it's always been quite a welcoming place. The motto of Deal is befriend the stranger, which I love. That's nice. Sandwich. <laughs> it's quite a lot smaller and a lot more conservative right. and sedate. So that was not a fun place to grow up. Yeah. You know, like hanging out outside the public toilets because there's literally nothing else to do. Kind mm -hmm. of thing. And I was a super awkward, shy, confused little kid. So yeah. I just didn't have the best time of it anyway no matter where I've been. But I always wanted to be in London, basically. I had a grandma who lived up here and I used to come up and she would take me to the theatre and to galleries. Did you ever, growing up, look to the future and mm. see 
you having children? So I did always imagine kids when I, in the future. Yeah. I, I sort of didn't really see myself, uh, and I never saw a partner either, maybe weirdly. I just always imagined me sort of looking after this big gang of kids who I would always sort of describe as being like muddy and climbing trees. And <laughs> um, and I, I guess I assumed they would be mine or, but that was never like explicitly the thing. I mean, I really loved like babysitting when, yeah. as a kid and um, always just always enjoyed the company of babies and young children and always sort of understood babies, like a kind of vibe <laughs> of babies, I feel like. And in a way, I think being very introverted, I do find the company of babies and kids easier than yeah. adults. Although... Weirdly, when I was very young, I just used to love hanging out with adults because I found kids my own age just sort of baffling. So, yeah, I had this image in my head, but yeah, I never considered how they'd be there, whether I'd have them or whether I'd be a mom or a dad or nothing about that was clear to me yeah. or, or particularly very interesting mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. I guess as well, you you went through a period of discovering mm. yourself and transitioning. So yeah. was that then something that completely was back burner? Because mm. you had, I want to say, bigger fish to fry. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's absolutely how it felt for a period. Like, so much has changed. I didn't come across the word transgender until I was at university, which was sort of the late noughties. I think possibly even 2009 when I was sort of in my final year at uni, which I'd really struggled through and almost dropped out. And so I was watching a lot of YouTube, being in my bedroom a lot of the time and kind of came across this pirated documentary about a trans boy in the States. And it was a huge epiphany moment. Obviously, I'd heard the word transsexual before only ever associated it with people that were you know mercilessly mocked and ridiculed and so that could never be me and also it was it would always be what I now know to be trans women mm-hmm. you know so I just I, it is weird to think that like you never realized that you could be the other way around yeah. I think also like because obviously masculine little girls have a much easier time of it socially and they are praised for being tomboys mm-hmm. than like feminine little boys right so I could just be myself a lot of the time and my parents were pretty accepting and it was only at certain points where it caused tension and friction where you know with school uniform or I remember my auntie who I love asked me to be her bridesmaid and mm. I had <laughs> I thought it would be okay and then I just had a breakdown in the sort of um, changing rooms in blue water how old were you Oh, blimey. I was probably about 15, 14, 15. So I knew I'd never been comfortable being read as a girl. And when people used to mistake me for a boy, I'd sort of secretly love it. And because I knew there was something different about me. Yeah, it's very confusing as a kid to be in that situation. But yeah, it was, uh, it just really came to a head that day in that changing room. I just remember sort of saying to my mum, I can't do this. I'm sorry. And I don't, and I maybe even said, I don't know why. And she just said, don't worry, you know, you don't have to do that. And, mm. I remember, and then we went to the wedding. My sister was a bridesmaid and then someone on the other side of the family was. And I think I sat in the car most of the time in my like jeans and T-shirt <laughs> listening to my music, which I was probably really into by that point. So, yeah, there, there were signs obviously throughout. and um, But it wasn't until university and then I had this epiphany moment, thought this is it and kind of felt like everyone's going to be as excited as me about this because isn't this amazing that I found this answer? And then... After about two weeks, I was in Scotland, so I couldn't just go home and yeah. talk about stuff. And But also after two weeks or so, I sort of realised, hmm, like maybe this is actually going to be more controversial <laughs> than I originally was able to realise because I was just on cloud nine, you know, thinking about stuff. And then, and then also I got into this headspace of like, I was so used to being uncomfortable. I, mm. I sort of felt like, I'm not even sure I, I can do that. Am I allowed to do that? Do I deserve to do that? took me a good few years. I mean, that must years. have really played around with your mental health as yeah. well. You know, yeah. you talk about not fitting in, and mm. but that's far deeper. Mm. That, that goes really deep, like I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it was really hard, but if you, it's been your whole life. You just yeah. don't really know. I think that's what I struggled with, the idea that other people didn't struggle about these things in the way yeah. that I did. I always had just kind of assumed that other people must do, otherwise... What is the answer? You can't not have an answer, right? It's kind of too scary. And also, you know, my mum would often reassure me that I would feel different eventually. And so, and I wanted to believe her. So I was mm. waiting for something to fall into place where, like all my other, my, my friends who were girls had really kind of grown into themselves and um, not had an easy time of it and like loved growing boobs or anything that's that kind of cliched, but sort of had really changed and felt like left me behind. Right. And, I, and I wasn't 
changing. I was it was getting worse, if anything, because I wasn't a kid anymore. So my um, non-conformity and difference were much harder to sort of bring into the adult world. It, I just felt like I was about five years behind everyone else, mm. which I think is a really common queer experience, actually. But yeah, so it was, yeah, this sense of like, um, oh, I could, I could have that. I could go after that. And the only thing that matters is what I want. Yeah. <laughs> like that took a long time to get my head around. Um, and and the, the clinic, the gender clinic that I was referred to, I had to wait about two years for my first appointment, which sounds like a long time, but is now about a third of the time that people are waiting on average because it's just gotten so much worse. But um, I think for me, that time was was quite helpful, uh, well, not necessarily actively helpful because I don't, don't want to let the NHS off the hook on this kind yeah. of front because it's not, it's not good and it wasn't good back then. But it did just allow me to develop much firmer confidence and then clarity about what I was doing. And, you know, yeah, there was one point where I was, you know, on this road towards a potentially getting testosterone, which I was really excited about and a little bit nervous about. Uh, which, uh, which I think is like totally healthy, you know, normal reaction to that thing. And then my auntie, whose wedding, funnily enough, I'd been asked to be a bridesmaid for a few years beforehand, she had another baby. So that made me suddenly worry and be like, maybe I should try and have a baby before I start my transition because I'd been told that transition would make me infertile. And I really knew I wanted to be a parent. And I thought about that for probably a couple of days before, right. before realising... Um, no, <laughs> that that is not going to work. I can't do this. I need to look after myself first. Mm -hmm. I cannot look after another life or a baby without looking it, after myself I'm first. I'm sure I've read your words where you say, mm. if I wanted to live, mm. I had to carry on with that. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think it's such a huge thing that, like, that is the reality, actually. Yeah, and I I think it helped me to discover this language and to discover that there were options for me but yeah when I say you know if I wanted to live if I, if I wanted any kind of life it's more that idea of like a proper life yeah. <laughs> where I am happy and fulfilled and being myself rather than this sort of half-life yeah. so it's not necessarily because obviously people taking their own lives is a very big issue for LGBT communities but it can also become a bit of a cliche and a bit mm -hmm. of a thing, that, a bit of a kind of trope that we expect to hear from trans people. Right. Uh, that's not exactly my experience, but certainly in terms of, yeah, living a kind of healthy, happy, fulfilled life and being myself, like absolutely transition wasn't a choice. It mm -hmm. was an absolute necessity. But yeah, it took me a while to accept that, I think. Uh, was your mum your first, the first person that you told? So the first person I actually told was one of my flatmates in Edinburgh, where I was at uni, called Karen. And... She was great, <laughs> and we're still very close. Yeah. How did it feel actually saying the words out loud? Oh, I think I probably felt really awkward. Like, what had felt amazing, before I spoke to Karen or anyone else, I had ordered a binder, uh, sort of secretly, <laughs> and I remember that arriving. It probably came from America at that point because there was very few places that were doing it, and there was actually a company that had made, like, it was, it was specialised in hernia compression right. tops and things like that but they'd realised that there was a market also for trans men and compression vests and things so I'd ordered that and it arrived and I felt nervous about it coming and when all my flatmates were out of the house there was lots of them there was about five of us in the flat I remember I put it on went downstairs uh, stood in front of the big mirror with with a t-shirt on and I hadn't known what it would feel like but it was such an affirming moment I was like sort of taken aback I was just like yes that's me oh my god <laughs> like yeah that was like my first clue I suppose that I was on the right path yeah you know I, at that point I would probably didn't even know where I would end up but I knew from that day forward I would never not wear a binder again yeah. <laughs> and then at some point that would probably mean having quite major surgery but yeah. I, but I wasn't quite ready to think about that right. at that point and then, and then I went down the road to buy some tea bags that we didn't need just so I could see what it felt like in the outside and I just felt like I was walking on walking on air you know sort of yeah. very confident interacting with the shopkeeper even it was just it's hard to put into words but like as as everything about the trans experience is kind of hard to put into words yeah. sometimes but probably like a month or so later that I had a visit home and talked to my mom and she remembers it really vividly and I do too sitting on her bed in our old house and 
you know, she, I think I did a good job of um, building up in a way where I was like, this is going to be kind of big, but I need you not to freak out because mm. I'm still liable to freak out. You know, I, this is new to me as well. And I sort of presented it as if like, I've, I've come across this thing. And I think it might be relevant. I wasn't like, this is me. And, you know, it wasn't like I could say, I am trans and she would understand what that meant. Yeah, that was, it's new language exactly. to you. Exactly. Yeah. So like no no one was talking about it. So I had to, so I think probably I started by explaining the concepts and hoping that she would be like, oh yeah, well that makes total sense because I've known you your whole life and yeah. this is this sounds like you. But she didn't say that and, I, and I've heard other trans people talk about how it can be quite disappointing when you feel like you've discovered who you are and it would be obvious to everyone else and it's yeah. not. <laughs> and maybe that's to partly to do with, you know, the stigma of these ideas of, of being trans. But if she was worried, she didn't show it, which I really am grateful for, for this, to this day. But I think at the end of the conversation, she she just says something like, well, I just want you to be happy. And this is, you know, it's kind of big. But, but the, and the only thing that worries me is the idea of, of surgery. And, and I think um, I probably said something like, well, you know, that's fair enough. <laughs> but that's not something we have to worry about right now. And it, yeah. it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't kind of happen for, I think, about two years maybe, right. uh, from that point. Yeah. And then when it did happen... She came with me. <laughs> Not only was she supportive of the idea and, and understanding at that point, but she travelled with me because I went to Florida because I wanted to visit this particular surgeon who was, you know, whose results I really, really thought were amazing. He was kind of the guy at that moment. Yeah, and she she came with me and it was very supportive. I wouldn't have been able to do it without her. And then when we were there, there was a, another parent who was a bit newer to the idea of his mm -hmm. son being trans. And so she was actually able to kind of be a bit of a mentor for him for that dad from New York, I remember. And I think she found that really helpful because she right. kind of stepped up a bit into that role where she realised that now she was kind of a little bit of an expert and, and someone else needed help and she would have needed that a few years before. So, yeah, it was really beautiful, actually, to see that happen as well. Yeah. Mm. One part of the documentary that mm. had me weeping was literally your mum saying, I'm in awe of him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny. It's funny in a way because, you know, we're still like very British and, you know, wouldn't wouldn't say those things to each other in person. But that's so why it's things amazing. like documentaries and stuff are yeah. amazing because it makes people sit down and go, yeah. talk, you know, yeah. maybe a little gentle needling, you know, to get <laughs> the words out. Yeah. Well, funny enough, my mum is like a massive extrovert and uh, yeah, has much less trouble expressing <laughs> her feelings. But yeah. <laughs> I spoke for an hour. Why have I only got two minutes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did it feel when you first started taking tea, testosterone? Before I started tea, I remember speaking to a consultant at the clinic and she helped me to sort of realise what I need, where I needed to get to in my mind in order to have confidence about this. And yeah. and I think I remember her saying something like, you know, because there's this huge pressure now more than ever really to, as a trans person, be like 100% sure and the the worst thing that could ever happen is that you might regret a decision right. and and that these these this idea of detransition is held over trans people as like the nightmare scenario yeah. and in fact actually trans people and people who have detransitioned have often close you know, intermingled complicated relationships mm -hmm. but i was terrified about that idea for sure so i remember someone saying to me basically you just need to do what's right for you now mm -hmm. in this moment and don't worry about the future like because you just you cannot know that and that was hugely reassuring to me because i also did know at that point if it didn't feel like the right thing you know fairly quickly or even not that quickly, but, you know, over the next few months, I could stop. You know, right. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But then, yeah, um, I mean, you don't feel anything for a while. I remember doing a sort of vlog. I have, like, very embarrassing uh, <laughs> videos <laughs> where I'm recording myself, yeah. which is kind of a cliche within the trans community. Trans guys have this joke of, like, there's a, it's like, this is my voice two weeks on tea and it sounds exactly the same as it did two weeks ago and then you okay. just say that over and over again so I've got those videos no one's ever seen them sorry <laughs> um, one thing you've spoken about with mm -hmm. tea is that people have been informed in the past that it can make them infertile mm. that's not the case I was stunned. I, I listened to you talking on another podcast where you said a lot of trans men fall pregnant by accident because you have mm. the, the silent ovulation that happens. Yeah. So this, my experience, and I think it is complicated and different for lots of different people uh, in terms of what they're told and what they're not told, because right. often it's a lack of information. Yeah. I remember being told explicitly that this is the end of the road in terms of having biological children. And it said it on the consent form that I was signing in order to be prescribed testosterone. And I... I think I just didn't really engage with that really? because I knew I needed to start tea. Yeah. 
I just thought I'm going to deal with that at some point in the future. And I probably thought I'll just adopt. And, uh, you know, I now know that that is a highly problematic kind of meaningless statement because adoption is its own thing yeah. that you need lots of motivation and commitment to do. But yeah, I, I, <laughs> I just knew I needed to start tea then. And also felt this pressure from a particular consultant at the clinic that I went to to not make a big deal out of it. Because if I made a big deal out of it, then maybe I wasn't like really dot, 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 you know. Okay. Because like if you're a man, you're not supposed to care about kids, right? You're supposed to kind of act as though the idea of being pregnant will make you physically sick. or right. So and, and also I'd never seen a pregnant trans man at that point. So I didn't know that was physically. But that wasn't occurring. I wasn't thinking to myself, well, maybe I could transition and then have a baby. It was just like, this is it. So I don't know why I was told that. I don't know whether it's, yeah, like I say, kind of like a social thing of like, well, if you're going to be a man, quote unquote, then you shouldn't care about having kids. Or maybe you'll meet a beautiful woman one day and get married in this like very um, heteronormative way mm -hmm. that you're supposed to be trans. Because, you know, up until, I don't know, only maybe 10 years ago, if you were a gay trans man, then you wouldn't be taken seriously either. So, right. you know, forget about talking about pregnancy or kids like you. You have to also, you have to be attracted to women in order to be a man. It's just like so confused and weird. And luckily, that's not really a thing anymore. Lots of trans men are gay or yeah. bi, and we know that now, and that's fine. But um, yeah, I just was given the uh, idea that you know, yeah, you're trans and, and you can do this, but um, all the complicated anything complicated you might be feeling, this isn't a safe space to discuss that. So you know, go back to your trans friends and maybe talk about it there. But although there was nowhere I could talk about it there either, because Again, trans men, I think, uh, we're almost like conditioned to even perform that stuff to each other in a way, especially na then. Not so much now, but then there were no trans men talking about like, oh, maybe I could have a baby. But yeah, it, there's no evidence that testosterone causes infertility. Can you remember when you found out that that wasn't true? Well, I remember the first time I saw a YouTube vlog, um, you know, good old YouTube again, <laughs> from a American trans man called Caden, who's on Instagram, and you should follow him. He's gone on to have another baby since. He fell pregnant accidentally. He says it in his vlog. He was one of these people who, I don't know what he was told about the effects of testosterone on fertility, but he certainly assumed that because he wasn't having a period that the testosterone was basically acting as a contraceptive. Right. I think nowadays you're much more likely to be told that testosterone is not a contraceptive which is sort of moving in the right direction. But I don't think trans men are being given any kind of fully accurate or non-judgmental advice about their options for starting a family. But yeah, I mean, I know lots of people anecdotally who have fallen pregnant accidentally. I also know of a couple of cases that are sort of documented in medical literature where trans men went to emergency rooms not knowing they were pregnant. They weren't asked. And then, you know, this one particular case I remember reading about Actually, it was a guy, he had done a pregnancy test that morning just to be sure. And then, so he did know he was pregnant and told the staff when he arrived at the emergency room. And if they had been trained properly, they would have picked up signs of preeclampsia. Right. He was late on in his pregnancy. Like he'd gone the whole thing without realizing. But then, you know, as he was feeling ill, thought, oh, maybe I'll just do a pregnancy test. So anyway, long, terrible story short, he lost the baby because he was left for hours with high blood pressure and no one did a scan or, or checked or anything. So, yeah, that can happen and, and does happen. And the fact that that in itself isn't just a massive scandal kind of infuriates me on a daily basis. But, yeah, through Caden, I sort of was presented with this reality that he was pregnant. Like, yeah. does that mean I can get pregnant? Was it because he wasn't on a high enough dose of testosterone? Or like, will my testosterone therapy eventually make me infertile? Like, all these questions I didn't have answers to. And actually, when I did conceive SJ, I still thought that it might eventually make me infertile. And that's kind of why I got pregnant when I did. Like, right. it was one of the factors anyway. I was in an okay position. Like, I had a good job and I had family support. But none of my friends were having babies at that point. But yeah, it was kind of, uh, I felt like, well, maybe I can have a baby now, but maybe in future I won't be able to. And now I know that that's also not true. Basically, no one has ever researched this. Mm -hmm. So what we have is a complete absence of evidence of harm caused by testosterone right. to the ovaries or any part of the reproductive system for trans men. Um, and then on the other side, we have hundreds of babies, <laughs> um, increasing numbers of babies who are born happy and healthy, even if their birthing parent was on testosterone because perhaps they didn't know they were pregnant, you know, well into the pregnancy. If they stop, 
these babies are born like happy and bonny and whatever. Yeah. Um, the advice is to not be on testosterone when you're pregnant if you're planning to conceive because uh, testosterone is um, tetragenic, I think, which is like the medical term for harmful to a developing fetus. Right. But these trans men are having babies and they can stop their testosterone. So but I guess I'm saying this to say that if this is if you are in this situation right now, don't panic. Like yeah. you'll be fine. But yeah, I did come off and, and sort of I was trying to conceive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can you remember when you finally decided, I'm going to mm. do this and I'm going to come off tea? Okay. I'm feeling like Jeannie. How did you feel? Was there a big build-up to that actually becoming a reality? Yeah, well, there was definitely... I watched that video by Caden and then I searched and found some more because it was just a suggested video. I kind of happened upon it. And Even that, that though. I know. You must I know. feel like certain things just come into your life. Well, I just feel more, again, I just feel angry that it was luck and, yeah. and relief and like, oh my God, thank God. I just chanced upon that video because, and so many people don't, you know, mm. like, and that just feels incredibly unfair and it shouldn't be that way. But yeah, I did, and, and then I learned some more. And again, I I felt like okay, maybe I could do this. And then with my job, I went to Australia for a year, and I think being really far away from my family, really struggling, feeling really homesick, or my other colleagues at the time sort of being in Australia with their families. So um, seeing that happen, seeing family life, and my sister had started having kids, and I loved being an uncle. And yeah, it was that distance like in a kind of cliched way where I was like, mm. okay, yeah, I have clarity, I have perspective right now. And I went to my boss, who is now my eldest godmother, <laughs> and said to her, I'm really sorry, but I think I need to go home. <laughs> uh, I was like the only person making videos for Guardian Australia right. at that point. So it was kind of like, she was so sweet, very supportive, and she sort of joked about how much of a pain in the ass it was going to be <laughs> for, for the company. But yeah, I think I sort of ended my contract about two months early and, and flew home. And my mum was really happy. <laughs> like, you know, and she'd always spoken about pregnancy in this like very positive way and almost in weirdly in a gender neutral way as well uh, sort of she says it in seahorse actually about how like everyone should experience pregnancy mm. she had very good pregnancies so i i kind of knew that she'd be into it and um wouldn't uh, what i was worried about was my friends and family would sort of think like oh my god really like after everything else now this you know like we it's going to come a point where we can't support you anymore or like you're just pushing it too far kind of thing and there have been some people in my life that have sort of had that reaction or i've just grown distant from and yeah. i suspect feel that way but my mum certainly was just like fucking a let's do it <laughs> so that was great yeah <laughs> so in the documentary mm. you try first time and that didn't work out. Yeah, so I tried IUI. Yeah. At that point, I was gonna, I was planning to co-parent with my friend who's in the film, and yeah, it didn't, it didn't work. But you know, it would have been unlikely to work. My understanding is it. I think most people who do intrauterine insemination with no medication, it sort of usually takes between like three and six attempts. I oh, think. really? I think so. It's quite a low success rate. Like IVF has a higher success rate. Well, IUI, you're literally placing it. Yeah. Next you, to, it, aren't you? Yeah, you the put the sperm, sperm in next to the egg. Um, via. A, catheter or something I suppose it would be and then you watch it on a screen and it goes <laughs> and <squirts laughs> in. it's really funny I had a positive experience at the facility clinic but yeah I didn't take that first time and then actually my friend and I realised that we we kind of rushed into it because I had my plan for starting a family which I'd been thinking about for a couple of years at that point and um, 
my friend also wanted to have kids but we kind of tried to mush our plans together in quite a rushed way and it just wouldn't have worked and we realized that kind of in the nick of time so after that first attempt I decided you know I was going to use a different donor and try again by myself because I'd always been kind of open to the idea of single parenthood anyway like I'm not sure why but I just always felt like that wasn't a scary idea it was mm. like kind of feel like that might suit me and anyway again I thought I was on the clock I thought tea might make me infertile any day <laughs> so I needed to just do it yeah know? how did you find finding your donor I mean, it's pretty bizarre experience. I think the weirdest thing about fertility treatment for me was that it was my first experience of private healthcare. Right. I was really aware of how much it felt like I, I felt like a client, and because I sound like I do and present like I do, even though I was there to get pregnant, I was treated very respectfully. I think I, my male privilege was like firing on all cylinders because I know other trans people who are maybe non-binary or trans women don't have positive experiences right. in those kinds of environments. It's a very, you know, it's a weird, uncomfortable thing to talk about, but that's, a, you know, I have to acknowledge that, yeah, I had a good experience. I think it's probably because, like, I'm a white, university-educated man. <laughs> so, yeah, it was fine and choosing a donor was... I didn't want to feel like I was like shopping or choosing particularly like I really had a strong sense that I just wanted you know they're all screened they're all healthy it's quite a low success rate for being a donor so I I kind of just felt like I'm just going to trust that it's a good process and just pick someone who I get a good vibe off (laughs) with the tiny amount of information you have and yeah yeah. and it worked first time with that donor second donor that I chose the IUI just worked it was like yeah, there's definitely... So RUI again as well. Yeah, yeah. With um, I think I maybe took Clomid, which is sort of a, a medication that you take for a few weeks afterwards. But otherwise, it was unmedicated. And yeah, so there's definitely nothing wrong with my fertility. <laughs> it's like very fertile. <laughs> but going into that process, that's mm. got to have been sort of hanging over your head in terms of fertility. How long will you have to be off tea for yeah, to yeah, make yeah. that happen? Yeah, that's why I, I felt like I was counting the days. What I really hated was not having tea in my system. I felt like I was, I really felt like there was something missing. It was running on empty. And right. yeah, how long am I going to have to be off tea for? Not how long will it take me to conceive, but how long am I going to have to be off tea for? Because, and then, you know, when I found out I was pregnant, it was weird because it was like quite a mixed feeling. Of really? Like, yeah, just like, you know, definitely an element of like, wow, it worked. But also a big element of like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to be pregnant for nine months now. That's nine months of testosterone at least, mm. you know. Yeah, I was scared. And you did that test with your mum as well. Yeah, yeah. And she's looking very glamorous uh, in the film. <laughs> <laughs> she's very pleased that scene got left in, I think. Was it first thing in the morning? Or <laughs> oh, my God, it was about 6 a.m. Oh, because I think the clinic had told me to do a test that early. I'm not oh, sure right. why. You've spoken a lot about almost hiding your first pregnancy. Mm. Yeah, I carried very small. Right. So I was able to just to kind of go around on a day-to-day basis. No one read me. No one sort of clocked me as pregnant. Even people I knew quite well, who I didn't, because I wasn't telling a lot of people. And was that important to you as well at that, mm. at that time? Yeah, I felt like being... If I'd been more visibly pregnant, I think I probably would have just stayed at home and been a bit housebound, because even in Deal, I'd worried about the reactions it would get, not being safe, kind yeah. of like people might react react aggressively or violently or or just might react negatively and I couldn't take that (laughs) I was so fragile during that time yeah and I my parents have a kind of project in Spain where they're doing up this ancient house and it's very bare bones and quite not a comfortable place to be especially if you're pregnant but I we I went there as much as I could because it's in the middle of nowhere (laughs) (laughs) it's I think just being allowed to be without the pressures of other people's expectations or that, that was like the bare minimum because it was also really hard to just be because <laughs> like yeah. because of the lack of testosterone and I was quite hard on myself I think I wasn't in a good place but thank God I connected with a friend of mine called Jacob who was also pregnant at the same time and he lives in the Midlands that was so helpful and then since then so many more people have come out you know trans non-binary all sorts have come out and, as pregnant and shared their experiences so I, I can't imagine ever feeling that alone again and um, I feel a bit sad for me back then <laughs> you know I just want to be like oh it's going to be okay and things will change so quickly and you don't yeah. even know kind of thing what is brilliant about the way that you share stuff is that you talk about having cis women trying to compare their experiences with yours mm-hmm. 
And and there actually is a, a part of the film where you're surrounded by women yeah. and everyone's talking about mum, the yeah. woman, the birth. And we have moved on, I would like to think, in those few years since the film was made. Mm. But you just... You're, it's like alarm bells going off yeah. around you. Like, how do they not see what's going on? But it's fascinating, just that simple thing of you can't compare experiences because no. they are completely different. Yeah, and it just triggers your dysphoria all over yeah. the place. But it, it's really hard because these people love you and they're trying to be supportive. And yeah. You can't reject that out of hand. You know, you can maybe, like, say something at another time, but, yeah. Um, how did you feel going towards the birth? Did you have a plan at all? Yeah, yeah, I did have a birth plan and I had a great community midwife the first time around who helped me write that and um, I had also spoken to my, that boss I mentioned, to my yes. um, SJ's godmother. I remember her saying, oh, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't talk to you about this, but she had a very traumatic birth experience basically and she did say, like, if you don't want me to talk about this, that's fine, but my approach to that kind of thing is like, no, I actually want to hear it. I want to hear how bad it can go and her mm. kids are fine and she's fine um, and it happened a long time ago so she did she told me everything and she told me you know make a birth plan but do not think that that's what's going to happen yeah <laughs> I had another person locally who was a doula, doula in training at the time she came and drew a graph for me about what happens with the hormones at different points so the fact that I could do all that sort of privately yeah. was really and, and that was just a, a coffee I didn't I didn't have to pay for that because I didn't wouldn't have been able to afford it at the time. So, yeah, I was very privileged, I suppose, to have those things. Mm. I mean, hypnobirthing is such an amazing thing that I feel like we mm. should all use in everyday life. Yeah, I have definitely used that breathing when I got my tattoo the other day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I was doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did you feel leaving home and heading towards the hospital? <laughs> I was kind of already in my... Um, trance state by that point because I've been able to labour at home so right. it's like well I had my first twinges at about 4am yeah and then mum came over and it was quite a cold January day quite dark we kept the blinds closed and I basically just sat on a ball all day and then uh, about probably 2pm we walked up to the beach where it's a stony beach where we are and it's kind of a custom that you if you're in labour you go and walk on the beach because it will help things progress because of the stones because it's yeah you have to balance and you're more. wobbling yeah. yeah and you're kind of it's quite um strenuous i suppose right. um and yeah then had a bath and then was like yeah i think i need to go in now and but my mum did that thing of like maybe have another bath you know so like it was just very relaxed and, yeah and actually then when we did go it was <laughs> terrible timing because then it was like rush hour locally so <laughs> there was a point in the car i had my like playlist on and i had my eyes closed and i was breathing and it was just on another planet already at that point. But um, a part of me was vaguely aware that right. we were stuck in traffic. <laughs> that wasn't great. But then when we got to the hospital, I was already, I think, six centimetres dilated. So I hadn't realised how effective the breathing was. Mm. I was like, I was just doing it. They were like, were right. Were different like scripts as well? No, no, nothing like that. I was just counting. Right. Not, no affirmations or anything, just counting. Just very like pragmatic. I'm going to do this. this is, I was holding on to that, like a life belt kind of thing. And I had like chilled music playing. Yeah. And then they ran the bath as quickly as they, or the pool when we arrived. Like, trying to remain calm, but with this sense of like, yeah, you definitely need to like, oh, okay, yeah, very far along. And then SJ was born at about two hours after I arrived, I think. And it was great. I just had this like flannel on my back and mum was at my, you know, cradling my head. And it was, I, I pushed a bit too hard too quickly because I think I was exhausted. And I think, funnily enough, this is like so specific to, to the trans experience, but I think because I'd been on tea, I had very strong pelvic floor right. and abdominal muscles. And again, it's one of those things that no one can tell you because this isn't an experience that's talked about or, or known about, but I tore quite badly because of, just how strong I was pushing and how right. hard I was pushing. So that's one thing I sort of thought was like, oh, maybe I should have so been a bit more open to like coached pushing or something. Right. And then he was born. <laughs> was... And what was it like that moment where yeah. you scooped him up, <clears throat> held him? Did it take a moment to kind yeah. of register? Because you're in such a trance, yeah. birthing, and then yeah. all of a sudden the baby's there. Yeah, it was very dark and there was some cello music playing, which is so wanky, but that's absolutely <laughs> we'll perfect. Yeah, yeah. And so like, yeah, so he, um, SJ was born on call, you know, so he was in the sack. So actually... Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's not obvious in the film. Um, no. But yeah, so I remember the midwife sort of saying, I caught him, I think. And then maybe I was like, oh, oh, just just wait a second. Just, yeah, just hold it. Just hold him for a second. And I didn't know what was going on. And, but, and then I remember just kind of feeling, and I could feel this like, 
slippery. Obviously, babies are slippery, but yeah. this felt like a whole thing, like a sort of yeah, a big oval thing. And but I was still just too out of it to really care, or you know, I just as long as it didn't sound like anything was the matter, so I was just whatever. <laughs> they were trying to get me to sit down, so I was more stable. And then I brought him out. Maybe I don't know a minute. It felt like ages, but and I don't think I knew what had happened until a bit after that. But I've yeah, seen pictures, but I've never name. met anyone that that's happened to. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of amazing given how much of a water baby he is, and that we live by the sea, and we've got like yeah. kind of maritime history in the family, you know, because it's meant to be good luck. You know, just, you know, naval families consider it to be good luck if you're born in the core, or basically you're kind of ne- nothing ever will happen to you at sea. I, I don't really believe in that kind of stuff, but it's nice, nice story, kind of yeah. um, associations and stuff. So yeah, and no, it, it kind of it does make me chuckle in the film. I say it's a boy, <laughs> and I'm like, God, that is not a good thing to say as a trans man. <laughs> That's very bad gender politics. <laughs> but um, I hadn't found out the sex, you know. Um, yeah, I think that's the first thing I said, and then I remember having some orange squash and that being like the best thing I'd ever tasted. Um, but yeah, just holding this tiny little thing. He's so tiny. And I had uh, I had donor milk, which I was a bit nervous yes. about using. Because you can chest feed, but obviously your surgery, mm. that wasn't something that was spoken yeah. about at all. N- well, yeah, it was not an option for me because of the type of surgery I had. Right. And amazingly, now I'm, I'm hearing that it is a conversation that some surgeons are having with their clients when it comes to top surgery because it is totally possible. Basically, the standard way of having top surgery, you have double incision, which is basically a double mastectomy, and you the, your nipples are removed completely and then placed back in a more kind of typically male position. Right. If you didn't remove your nipples, they'd be in the wrong place because right. they, they get rid of quite a lot of skin, basically. So that obviously ends the connection between your nipples and, and milk ducts. Yeah. And there's, you know, people don't know, maybe they'll reconnect or because I have produced tiny amounts of milk when SJ was born, but then no extra milk when LB was born. So I, I don't think it's ever going to be possible for me. And that's okay. And I'm very yeah. grateful for being able to access donor milk through the Hearts Milk Bank, primarily. Well, but can people through... just donate their milk? Yeah, it's not, you know, you can't just rock up and hand it over. But Hearts is this incredible community-centric milk bank. Whereas most milk banks in the UK operate either within hospitals or mm-hmm. for neonatal units right. exclusively. Whereas in the US, it's much more common to have milk sharing and, and banks that are based in the community. I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that Hearts is the first of its kind in the UK where its focus is, I think it does also supply to neonatal units, but they will work with families directly in community in, in need of milk for whatever reason. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to hear about them through a local friend of mine who was a lactation consultant. And yeah, they, they helped us out. And then when LB came along a few years later, I um, went back to them. But I also had milk donated from individuals, which was so incredible. How soon after birth could you go back on tea? And how did that feel? Um, <laughs> yeah, that was that was great. I think it's different for everyone. I would imagine, especially if you do have any kind of postpartum mental health issues, you might want to wait li- longer or they might be helped by going back on tea so it's always going to be a really individual conversation i'm lucky to have a great endocrinologist like hormone doctor who i could speak to directly about it rather than having to go through my gp so i think i went to see him about eight weeks postpartum and um i didn't realize actually i thought he was going to give me a prescription that i'd have to take home but he just offered to give me a shot of tea there and then and i wasn't ready for that and i started crying (laughs) Um, because yeah that was just yeah and i had a real kind of hollywood moment of like wow we did it like sort of coming full circle because obviously baby's there baby's healthy that's the most important thing but for me giving birth didn't quite feel like the end of the process you know until i was feeling like myself again you know that's really when it felt like yeah like I did it and here we are and this is us and you know we're going to be a family and it's so exciting yeah yeah and it, the film wasn't put out there until you were back on tea mm. I, was re- I was reading recently yeah you yeah. wanted to be back on tea and feeling more like you yeah before that was yeah out there that was a condition I actually put out very early on I think, yeah before even agreeing you know um saying that it was Jeannie that I wanted to work with. Yeah, I guess knowing myself, I just felt like, okay, I do want to tell this story. But, you know, like I said, I wanted to keep it very private while it was happening because I 
I sort of knew I was going to struggle and I didn't have a wider support system of other trans men going through it. So like when Jeannie would come to film in Deal, we would have cover stories for what we were doing, which was really funny. Because it's handy that I'm a journalist, right? Yeah. So like that was all very believable. But yes, it was, you know, it premiered at Tribeca in 2019, which I think is like in March. So it was over a year after SJ was born right. that the film was was being put out there. So I was just very ready to, to share it with the world. And also, you know, it's a film. It's not It's not actually what happened, which may sound funny because it is a documentary, but basically when you film a documentary, you end up with hundreds of hours of yeah. footage. From that, you could tell one of hundreds of stories, yeah. really, like with a different angle or a different emphasis or a different tone. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was for Jeannie really to go away and, and craft that. And I, actually, you know, so she was there when SJ was born. She came and said a very quick hello about three hours later. And then I didn't see her again for three months, I think, which was absolutely perfect and how I wanted it. So I didn't see the film for ages. I wasn't involved in the edit. And, yeah, I was very happy with the story that she had chosen to tell about that time. But I felt like also it wasn't, you know, my experience and that film are two different things. Yeah. So I was able to retain quite a significant level of privacy because so much happens in two, well, we were filming for two years, yeah, that, you know, there's plenty that isn't in the film. Mm -hmm. Round two, going again. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but this time in a very different way. Yeah. You know, because you shared it. Is it because of the film and because mm. of social media and because of feeling like you're part of a larger community now yeah. you can share that with and feel solid with? Yeah, all of that. You know, when I was trying to conceive for the second time, I wasn't the only person that I knew trying to conceive. You yeah. know, uh, certainly wasn't the only person... I knew that had had a baby or wanted to have babies in future. It was just suddenly this conversation that was open to like, oh, you know how we go on about how trans people are just the same as everyone else. Like, turns out it's actually true. And that includes wanting a family. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a trans man that you're going to give birth, but it might mean that. And that's totally fine. It's not a big deal kind of thing. So, yeah, I just felt like I wanted to carry on. I wanted to be more open and share that second experience because still aware that there's a huge dearth of information uh, and advice out there. And I'm not a doctor and I would never want to give anyone medical advice, but I can just sort of say things and put things out there and make sure that people know to like ask that particular question yeah. maybe or maybe just not believe what they've been told a lot of the time. But yes, it was a completely different experience. It was good as well, but that I didn't take me long to conceive again. You know, it, right. took, it took longer and there was the pandemic, which made everything more complicated. So there were delays and stuff, but um I wasn't also struggling with like fertility issues, which I can imagine are incredibly difficult. And how did the second pregnancy compare? It was probably worse on the kind of nausea front. <laughs> but oh, and this but, time you've got a toddler to run around after. I know. Well, well uh, SJ was three by this right. point, so I had waited a while longer than maybe the average because uh, for a while I thought I would just actually have one and. And actually that age gap, yeah, turned out to be kind of a godsend because, yeah, I felt terrible <laughs> for the whole nine months of carrying LB, my second child. But um, at the same time, I was less nervous because it was my second pregnancy. So I was like, just give me the drugs to stop me feeling sick. Whereas the first time I didn't, I felt like, oh, I don't want to risk taking anything in case, you know, it's a different mindset kind of thing. Uh, this time around, though, you were planning on giving birth in Sweden. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I th yeah, I think this is around the time that I first started following you. Right. Because of the legal side yeah. of giving birth in the UK. Mm. So UK birth certificates, the person that gives birth is the mother. Mm -hmm. So that is it comes from a case in the 70s that was about deciding about inheritance or, or like inheriting a title. And that's right. actually the first time that it was defined in law, which is kind of funny that in the UK it always comes back to like who's going to be the lord yeah. or the lady. So, yes, it was. And then that also makes things difficult for surrogates. Yeah, It means surrogates have to be registered as the mother. And if they're married, their husband or partner goes down as the father, which just blows my mind because yeah. often obviously surrogates aren't genetically related and certainly don't want to be registered as the mother because they're not the mother mm -hmm. the surrogate but that choice is taken away from them by this kind of paternalistic outdated legal system and for trans men as well if we give birth we are by definition the mother and in the case that i bought to try to change that i wanted to be listed as either the father or the parent right judgment was very surprising 
uh, and and kind of confused with respect to the judges, because on the one hand it said that mother is no longer a gendered term because now we have trans men that can give birth. So I guess they thought the simplest quote unquote solution to that was to say that mother isn't gendered; it's gender neutral, which is obviously ridiculous. Yeah. But then also. And in the same breath, they said that my legal gender recognition, which says that I am male for all purposes, isn't valid for parenthood. So it sort of stops at the point in which you become a parent. So the judgment said both those things, even though they contradict each other. So mother is gender neutral, but I'm also not a man when I become a parent. It just doesn't make any sense. And, and like we, what I thought the court case was doing was presenting the courts and maybe government with an opportunity to update the law because yeah. actually this system doesn't work for any non-traditional family, LGBTQ or blended yeah. or whatever. And then once we'd bought the, the case and it started, then the kind of transphobia nightmare began in the UK. And we ended up in 2019 with this bizarre judgment that said all these things that don't make any sense uh, and, and don't really work for anyone because like, I don't think cis women want mother to be a gender neutral term mm. either. But funnily enough, in our system, parent is gendered female because only the female partner of a woman that gives birth can be registered as the parent. Basically, it was their way of getting around, of being able to put two women on a birth certificate. Right. So only the woman that gives birth can be recognized as a mother and the other mother because that's what she is, mm. has to be registered as parent. But Sweden, the law is different. So in Sweden, a couple of years ago, a trans man uh, challenged it in the same way that I did, it, almost exactly at the same time. In right. fact, it's kind of this sliding doors moment where the Swedish government presented with this problem where um, uh, someone who was legally a man and male for all purposes, and not just gender, but sex, like that's what the law says, said, oh, hey, I can't register as the father. And then the Swedish government said, oh, Thank you for pointing that out. Here we go. We're going to update the law. And it was just like just like that. It just happened. Um, just that simple. And same for trans women. And that doesn't mean that the child doesn't know who gave birth to them. Yeah. Because obviously the child's rights are the most important thing. That is the child's document. And often I get accused of sort of putting my own needs before my children's, which I'm obviously not doing because, you know, no parent would do that. But yeah, so the child can still know who gave birth to them, but they just have the sort of correct title, whether it's mother, father or parent. And lots of countries actually can allow for parents to go down as parent, um, whether they're trans or not. Like, it's just a kind of option. Well, I mean, we're behind you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. What was it like taking you back um, to LB mm. and bringing LB home? Because <laughs> did you think about beforehand what it would be like for SJ to have another little uh, a sibling in the house and, and how he might handle that? Yeah. Because any parent, you kind of go, oh, am I doing the right thing? Oh, bye. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Especially as a as a single parent, right? Mm. Like, I was worried that he would suddenly be like, where did you go, basically? Even if I was right there, I might be distracted the whole time. And, we, and it really had just been the two of us for so long, even though we're always seeing friends and family. And actually, there's rarely a period of even a few days where we don't see people. And he goes to nursery as well, which has been amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we talked about it really. Like I've, that's kind of my approach for better or for worse is just to talk about everything. You know, if I was reading him books about how babies are made that were, that are trans inclusive from the day he was born almost, you know, and talking about his donor. And so, yeah, I sort of, we remember talking, you know, like, you know, what it's going to be like, you know, there's going to be a baby and it's probably going to be really noisy and <laughs> sort of stuff, you know. I and mean, I'm so grateful that there are so many books and programs now around about this kind of thing, right? Mm. So... I wasn't having to figure that out by myself by any means. And yeah, I had all the same fears that I think most parents have about um, adding a sibling of like, am I going to love them as much? Am I going to yeah. have enough love? You know, but actually, <laughs> I was all geared up for it to be the year from hell in terms of sleep and stuff. But LB is very chill. And I, I don't want to sound too nauseating about this, but, you know, it's just like uh, they are just an angel baby <laughs> so far. <laughs> and and they slept through since about a month old, like, was you know, six weeks old and so smiley and just love watching SJ just so curious about what they're doing and trying to get their his attention the whole time and 
babbling away. Yeah, so um, you know, and we sleep all in one big bed, which is easier for me. Yeah, easy easy for me to do and choose to do as a single dad. So yeah. you know, there are ways in which like I actually think being by myself is easier. Yeah. Um, because I'm not having to factor in another adult. And yeah, like I just made the decision, having struggled a little bit with SJ and, and bedtimes and sleeping, and then ended up you know co-sleeping with him. Just thinking, actually, yeah, I'm just going to do this because this is what works for us. And and that's the thing, isn't yeah. it? Because to some people, like I can, like early days with with mine, people being like, mm. "Oh, you're making a rod." What are you? Yeah, but actually, no. if it works for you, yeah, absolutely. I still now, and mine are eight, six, and four. I sometimes climb into their bed until they yeah. fall asleep. I, yeah, absolutely. I have a little nap. I mean, it's and it's the norm in yeah. many cultures around the world, and was here until like a few hundred years ago, I think. You know? And you can understand that, though. Yeah. You can understand why to <laughs> totally. them it's such a nice, com- like, comforting thing. It's yeah. a nice bonding thing. You talked about the books that you read to the kids, or you read to the kids, but you've actually written your own. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is very, very exciting. I received my copy. It's called Little Seahorse and the Big Question. Amazing. Cool. Um, yeah. And what did your kids think? I have to ask you. First. They loved it. Oh, good. <laughs> they loved it, and also it's so colourful and everything. Mm, as well. All the and illustrations. It's a, and it's oh. a conversation star. So, like, literally, yeah. you ask the question as you as you go through. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I should think I should credit SJ in the most because I was saying so on the other day. Like, I think people think it's going to be a book about. Um, seahorses having babies or, yeah. or like or, or transness in some way that's like appropriate for small kids but no it just so happens that the characters are like me and SJ <laughs> and so I thought I'll make them seahorses because yeah. like you know male seahorses give birth and it's kind of a mascot for our community but the conversation they have is nothing to do with transness no it's yeah it's just the, it's a conversation that we actually had um, you know partly precipitated by me being sick of the idea that um, you know children need a mum and a dad. Mm. If they don't have that, they're missing something. But then you know, yeah. I was but just... even then, that isn't really said in the book. The no, no, really it's, that's is. True. <laughs> yeah. What do we need? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, if you could write a letter mm. on parenthood, who would it be to, and what would you say? Hmm. Uh, um... I know. I like to get everyone really comfortable and yeah. like to throw a few, you know, big things at you at the end. Yeah. Well, I guess like uh, my first, my first thought was, um, like I said earlier, like I wish I could sort of go back in time and reassure me like five years ago that everything was going to be okay. But actually, I suppose building on that idea, I would write to a young trans person, trans boy or trans girl doesn't really matter, or to tra- young trans people in general, to reassure them that uh, I suppose partly like you don't have to worry about this yet because I think often in the media fertility and future families are raised as a, as a, in a sort of scaremongering way to terrify the parents of trans children yeah. that they're never going to be grandparents and that they're doing something to their child that's going to make them infertile. We know increasingly that that's just not a concern in the way that it's framed. Sometimes it is a conversation that needs to be had, but there are always options, yeah. you know, uh, and, and especially for trans boys, they do not need to be thinking about like harvesting their eggs at the age of 15 when it's like the last thing they want to do because... What fifth, you know, what you want to do when you're 15 is not going to be necessarily what you want to do when you're 25. Mm-hmm. How does it make you feel knowing that when you were growing up, you didn't have people to look at, but now there are going to be young trans people who are looking at you? <laughs> do you know what I mean? And yeah. getting so much hope and and validation in who they are, and seeing a future whereas, you know, maybe previously. Uh, that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the correct answer is that, like, it's amazing. But actually, the real answer is that it's terrifying. Because, <laughs> you know, like, I don't uh, Yeah, me specifically, I, I, I guess I can't really comment on that. But obviously, I'm very pleased and glad and relieved yeah. that there is a community and there are role models to look to. And, yeah, obviously, it feels amazing when I get a, a DM from a young trans person saying, oh, I saw your film or like, oh, my God, thank you so much for showing me that I can be a dad one day or Mm. or I can be a parent one day. (sighs) Yeah, that's incredible. Again, I I don't feel like I should be in that position. They shouldn't have to be looking to me. Do you know what I mean? Like until the day when they are getting sex education at school in the same way that their straight cis peers do, I won't really be happy. (laughs) I I won't give you like a neat answer on that. But, you know, it's... I guess there's a lot there that wasn't. So, yeah, I definitely have to be happy for that. Yeah. We finished the podcast on you finishing, completing three sentences. 
Okay. Being a dad means? Everything. <laughs> Since having children, I? Oh, God, that's... Um, like, really grew up and became became myself in some way. Yeah. <laughs> Not as neat as the first answer. <laughs> <laughs> it was very... <laughs> that was a, yeah. It was a proper statement, the first answer. Yeah, nice that and was short. easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm happy when? Oh, I'm happy when I'm sitting on the sofa with both kids. I mean, you know, I was happy yesterday when we were sat on the sofa watching Moana. <laughs> SJ was uh, consuming an entire bowl of popcorn to himself. <laughs> LB was watching SJ eat the popcorn as if it was the most fascinating thing that had ever happened in the history of humanity. And I had a cup of tea. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's my happy place. Amazing. <laughs> Freddie, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.